Welcome to the Psych and Business Podcast, where we highlight the integration of psychology and psychological principles into the world of business and organizations. I'm your host, Dr. Ernest Wade. I have another great guest for you today. He's the founder and CEO of Adastra Consulting, and his name is Jamie Ramsden. Jamie has over 25 years of international business experience, which he brings to his work as an elite coach working with Fortune 500 C-suite clients business owners, and entrepreneurs across the globe. Jamie has also written extensively about leadership and executive coaching and has a newly released book called Let's Go, How Great Leaders Shape the Future. And I hope we can get him to talk a little bit about the book today. Jamie, welcome to the show. Ennis, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I'm so glad, Jamie. And I, and I, I want to dive right into your book. But before that, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your journey. You know, I always want to know how did you get into this world of coaching and consulting and writing? So tell us about your journey. Yeah. So I've always been fascinated by leadership. Let's start there. Uh, but I was born, raised and educated in the UK. And mm -hmm. uh, then I spent five years in, in Europe, based in France. And I spent the last 20 years or so in the US. Um, I, I educated, I uh, had a master's in uh, specializing, an MBA specializing in leadership and change management from Lancaster University. And uh, part of the reason I picked Lancaster is because, A, because it had a six-star rated research, uh, mm -hmm. six-star rated research university, but also because of, of the 80 or so people that were in there, there were only four or five of us from the UK. So it was a very global mm -hmm. program. And so, um, and so I went from there to um, back, came back to the US where I was working in the automotive industry for a company that was, uh, that was broken. And uh, we, we did a turnaround on the organization. So um, and maybe I'll talk about that in a minute. But as a function of the turnaround, uh, I ended up becoming the CEO of that organization for about mm -hmm. a decade. And then we sold it to private equity. And since then, I've been running my own, my own coaching practice, specializing and focusing on one-on-one -on -one work with C-level executives, typically CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jamie, this is such an interesting experience. I'm keying into so many things here. I, I love the, the the diverse and eclectic nature of your upbringing and your background. I think that's so awesome. I'm always drawn to people who've had such great experiences because I've lived in a lot of different countries myself. I think that, mm -hmm. that brings something in the richness to, to, to who we are and the work that we do. And then obviously as a CEO of a, an, an auto industry, I think this is that's that's really interesting. I definitely want to hear about that a little bit more. Cool. Um, Jamie, tell me about the work that you do now and how you bring all of that experience, the research, uh, all of that, that that you've gained. How do you bring that into the work that you do now? Yeah. And so um, and so let me talk about as CEO, how I became CEO and how that applies to the work I do now, because mm -hmm. when I walked into the organization, it was broken. So from a number of different metrics, quality, cost, delivery, service, attrition, profitability it was in a bad place. And actually, 10 of the of our top 12 customers told us, you've got 90 days to figure this out. Otherwise, we're going to get rid of you. So there was real <laughs> impetus to do something about it. And so, so very stressful, right? It was, a, it was a pretty intense, uh, intense moment. So a group of us decided we had nothing to lose. So we were going to try and make it better. Mm -hmm. And so the process we took, which is quite a similar to the coaching process that I engage right now, which is almost these 90 day sprints. So mm -hmm. we had 10 organizations saying it's not good enough. And so the first step we took was to acknowledge is the acknowledging acceptance of where we are today mm -hmm. and the willingness to do the work. And so I had 10 streams of information to say, this is not good enough. And I said, okay, we're not good enough. We are not mm -hmm. a good supplier. We're in the bottom 5% of your global supply chain. 
And so we're going to get better. And so we did these 90 day sprints, which is, you know, literally, how do we get from here to the next step? And, yeah. and we would enlist them in the process and bring them along into the process so that they were committed to our success. And so, so you made it very collaborative, it sounds like. Yeah, it was a collaborative approach. And so not all of them wanted to do that. They're like, well, you run your business. I'm not here to run your business. But in the cases where we did have people who were invested in the outcome, because it's expensive to change suppliers, and it's nothing better if you're a purchasing or supply chain manager to say, I turned this company around. Yeah. And so we acknowledged, we said, we're not good enough. And how do we get better? And so there's a piece of that, a piece of that that's around the same thing that we do in coaching is, this is where I am today. So I'm acknowledging and accepting where I am. And then help me build a process and build structure towards being better tomorrow. And so mm -hmm. we did these 90 day sprints and every day, they, every 90 days, they come back and check in on us and say, yeah, this is good. You know, this is better. Uh, success is not linear. So sometimes we go backwards, but typically yeah. the trajectory was upwards. And so uh, within 18 months, we've gone from the bottom 5% in our global supply chain, of their global supply chains to the top five. So we were an award-winning supplier within 18 months. From somebody that they were ready to get rid of and so it's the same business the same people right the same process our clients didn't change what changed is our sense of agency about what we could do and this mm -hmm. willingness to just be better and so you know through that process then uh you know through that process then i ended up being the ceo of first the usa and then the americas because of the, the way that we've driven that business and so Jamie, let me let me let me let me ask you a question here because what no. you've described is 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 amazing. I mean, it's spectacular to change an organization within the space of 18 months, especially when you have to change people's minds and the culture. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you had to do a lot there. How did you, how did you manage that? Right? Because that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to get people to buy in, sure. to accept firstly that things aren't going well, and then to buy into a change and to be engaged in getting the, the organization turned around. Sure. Well, I think from a client standpoint, it was taking the feedback and assimilating what is similar amongst what they're saying to us and what, how do we bridge the next step mm -hmm. but inside the organization? I think we already had the answers. And so this is what's similar with coaching is I went out onto the floor and I'd ask people like, what is it that we need to do? And they would give me the answers. And when mm -hmm. they correlated or co you know, coincided with what our clients were saying, then we would implement it and we'd do it with speed because they'd already seen it. Now, you know, there are times where we had to sort of paint a picture where we'd say, okay, we're going to go to this next step It's a technology or a process or a system you may not be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so then that might take a little bit of encouragement, but we had credit in the bank because we listened mm -hmm. to them. We listened to the folks on the front line. I would get out on the front line. I worked on the front line to be able to understand their world. And then we collaboratively and collectively made it better. And they shared in the spoils. They shared in the celebrations that we had. Um, you know, of literally, I would when we won the awards, I'd take it down onto yeah. the onto into the into the facilities and say, "Listen, guys, this is what you did." And so that's really spectacular. I think <laughs> yeah. that's that's fan, that's a fantastic approach that you took. Yeah, uh, and, and and I know that you do a lot of coaching, consulting. Now, how do you weave that experience into the work that you do? So yeah, so there's this process around, like I said, you know, sort of a, the acknowledgement or, or establishment of where we are, and so mm -hmm. there's. Let's do a biographical survey to understand how you see the world. Let's do some psychometric assessments to understand mm -hmm. like, you know, how mm -hmm. it was formed and how you see the world. And then we take feedback from the environment and triangulate those three things and say, okay, are you seeing things as they really are? And then if there's a willingness and a commitment to do better, then we obviously have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And then we unlock the potential that's within that person the same way that we unlocked the potential that was within our organization. Mm. Yeah. 
I love I love that I love that concept and the approach that you take there. And I know that you have the, the framework that you you use uh, in your coaching, and that includes like the individual, the team, uh, the mission, and the context. Can you talk a little about that framework, and then just talk about how that framework led into the book that you've that you've written? Because I think yeah. that's the, the it's 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 really interesting yeah, so to my, hear how that so my, my leadership. Um, uh, my leadership framework comes from actually from my thesis, from my MBA thesis. So I, mm-hmm. I read 100 books in 30 days, believe it or not. And I interviewed a whole bunch of senior executives. And from the ground up, I built out a theory of what I was trying to find is the universal principles of leadership. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we talk about there are four dimensions of leadership, which are individual, team, context, and mission. Mm-hmm. And within those domains or dimensions, there are four roles that a leader has to play that speaks to those four areas. And mm-hmm. so the individual is about being a role model. And that speaks to people's sense of self. Mm-hmm. Then we talk about the community building, which is building a team that speaks to people's sense of belonging. Then we have the sense making, which speaks to the sense of meaning, which is how do mm-hmm. I interpret and interact with the world in a way that makes sense? And how do I make sense of the world for the people inside my organization? And then there's future shaping, which is about the, which is about how do we shape the future? Right? How do we have this sense of purpose and this collective sense of purpose? And so inside our organization, it was, we're going to be one of the best suppliers in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so it's that aspirational element that I bring to now. I bring the same process and same aspirational element. But of course, it's not about me. It's about my client. Yeah, I, this is, I love that your model is research-based. You know, I think that's one of the, the great things that I really appreciate about your work is You've done the research, right? You've done the research in, in order to, to come up with this model. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us examples of, of how you've used this model to help leaders and their organizations? Yeah. So um, so let me just talk about my affiliation with the Center for Creative Leadership. So when I was a CEO, I then uh, had the choice then, right, to either get a coach um, to continue my education or to yeah. be a coach. And I said, oh, you know what I'm going to do while I'm a CEO? I'm actually going to learn how to be a coach and I'm going to coach. So this is something that's very unique. I don't think many other CEOs have done this. A lot of them yeah, the end of their career and then do a coaching certification. But actually for 10 years, for a decade, I was coaching. So I'd take a day off a month and I would go and do the CCL, the Center for Creative Leadership's LDP program, which is mm-hmm. three and a half hours in the morning with assessments, feedback tools, biographical survey. You sit with somebody and you put together a development plan. And then three and a half hours in the afternoon. So literally, I would go and do this once a month, and it helped inform my thinking about what leadership is, right? What does it stand for? What is consistent? Like, what are the problems that we have as human beings? Mm-hmm. And what are, the, what are the unique issues that you may have in your industry or in your market or in your company? So, so you learned to be a coach while you were a leader, and that, that helped to inform your leadership. Talk a little bit about how that, that, that training as, in terms of coaching informed your leadership and your leadership yeah. style? Well, I joke and I say, well, I, I think it made me a better leader, right? My joke is you'd have to ask other people if it made me a better leader. <laughs> <laughs> and in my defense, if it didn't, it was 20 years ago, right? So, <laughs> so I was young. Um, but, you know, just understanding what are the differences, what are the things, the challenges that we have as human beings, right? So to your point, how do I understand the motivations of others? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the piece that, you know, we keep coming back to is uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see that leaders make, and I made this one wholesale, is thinking that other people are motivated the same way that you are. Yes. 
right? Yes. And so yeah. we say, okay, uh, well, if I say this in this certain way, then then hundred people in the room are going to run out with a, you know, waving and cheering that they're really excited to do this. And yes. actually, you're lucky if you get ten or fifteen. And so <laughs> the adapting the message that you're, you know, giving to the people inside your organization, being mm -hmm. adaptive with that based on what their motivations are is an important part of leadership. So tailoring the message to the audience is sometimes the way it's described. But, you know, just that can be a big miss, right? Mm -hmm. When people who are A-type, they're ambitious, they're driven, they're articulate mm -hmm. and intelligent, and they say, well, why doesn't everybody else understand this? Yes. Why doesn't everybody else get it the way I do? And they're at the top of an organization. Why doesn't everybody else care as much as I do? Yeah. The reality is that people don't. Yeah. They may I, not I, care I, as much as you do. I, I resonate with that completely because I've, I've had that experience myself where... I get excited about something and I, and I'm so excited about it and I go tell the troops and they look at me like I'm crazy and I just, I just cannot understand. And it took my understanding or my, my recognition that, Hey, everybody's different and everybody's motivated differently for me to be able to figure out, okay, well, just because this motivates me, doesn't mean it's going to motivate them. How do I motivate them? And it requires you, as you're saying, to really understand who your, who your people are, right? Who they are and what motivates them. Yeah. And so a lot of what I, you know, my model is based around this, this concept of the things that we believe, they inform our mindset, right? Mm. So the things that we believe, and that's why we typically will do a biographical survey or we'll do some kind of psychological assessment to understand what it is that people believe, because mm. that informs the mindset, i.e. their thinking about how to inter interpret and interact with the world. And then the thinking informs their behaviors. Because yeah. what they'll say is, well, based on my thinking, if I'm in a certain context, if I do X, I will get result Y, mm -hmm. which may or may not be true. And then their, their behaviors will then inform the outcomes or actually what happens in the world. And so what we can see is that people selectively grab from the environment information that proves their beliefs. It reinforces yes. their beliefs. And so part of my process is getting people to disrupt that pattern because that can lead to sort of diving down or, or regressing back to behaviors that felt comfortable. And what we want to try and do when I'm working with folks is to increase their self-awareness by seeing those patterns and understanding mm -hmm. the limitations of that thinking. And then in a constructive way, in a risk-managed way, right? Because if you're at top of the organization, you can't just try and do something differently mm -hmm. wholesale if you don't feel like comfortable with it. So we find yeah. places, ring fence risk, and we try experiments that allow us to operate under a different assumption. And as we mm -hmm. sort of see that cycle, what we end up having is a two different approaches to a similar problem or many different approaches to a similar problem. Mm. And so what that means as a leader is then you're not attached to your own ego or your beliefs or your preferences or your training or your pride or what you think people expect of you. You can actually step back and say, what does this situation call for? There's a judgment. What does the situation call for and how do I deploy the assets and how do I deploy the resources, and the intellect, and hopefully some of the other people in order mm -hmm. to get this where it needs to be? Whereas when we see, sometimes we conflate the idea of leadership being somebody who always fixes it, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. So the great leaders I work with have this egoless confidence, right? They have this humble courage to say, it doesn't have to be me. Yeah, I, Jamie, I tell you, I, I love how psychologically minded your approach is, because even though we're talking about behavioral change and getting the leaders to behave in certain ways, you take it way back to the beginning to help them understand, hey, what what helps you develop your internal motivations, your internal 
principles that that influence all of your behaviors and their actions. So you know you really dig deep to to really start at the root of it. And I think that's such a, a great approach because it's to me it's it's what we're, this show is about, right? It's the psychology of individuals that impacts their business decisions. So I really appreciate yeah. that aspect of it. Yeah, and actually in the process. So what I like to do when I'm doing a coaching process is we start with biography and assessment before we take in any information from the outside. And we kind of have this, it's, I want to say it's a game, but it's like an experiment of saying somebody with this profile would tend to. Mm-hmm. And we say, well, what would this person tend to do based on what we see in the biography and in their assessment data? If this is the way that you think, right, what are the behaviors that we could expect? Mm-hmm. And so when the 360 comes in, it's not suddenly, oh, these people are attacking me or this information is incorrect. It's like, oh, they got me. Yeah, they can see yeah, that. Behaving is expected. Behaving is expected. So then the question becomes, do you want to do something about it or not? Is this just mm-hmm. the tax of doing business with me? Is this just part of the cost of doing business with me? Or is this something that I'd like to evolve and change in, in mm-hmm. through this process? And so typically over a nine, 12 month process, we get people to um, have a sense of agency, have a sense of mastery and develop mm-hmm. a profound sense of impact. That's what happens through this process. We go from self-awareness through a sense of agency, I, I'm in charge. I don't have to be in control, but I'm in charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then they go to this process of like uh, mastery or finesse, right? Like where um, I hope that you know your listeners have worked for somebody who was someone who did it well and made it look easy. That's the way yeah. I define mastery. Like they unlock the potential in others. They don't put themselves center stage. They're there to facilitate success within their team, group, or organization. And as they do that, if you're intentional about how you build your network, how you build relationships around you inside and outside the organization, then you can have enormous impact with minimum input. That's the way. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm appreciating what you're talking about, um, not having to be not having to be the the only problem solver or or not having to be the one who who solves all the problems. Right. And and in order to get to that point, I, I find with a lot of leaders, there needs to be that self-confidence, that self-awareness, that self-assuredness in who you are in order to make space for other people to to do their work, right? You don't feel like you have to be the problem solver. You don't feel like you have to be the spotlight because you're assured in who you are, right? And, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about is building the awareness of who you are first so that you can be confident and competent in that so that you can make space for other people. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? That is, that is right on, right? So it's the awareness to say, what does the situation call for? And it may call for me standing up and declaring something, right? As the leader, I may have to bring a sense of urgency. I may have to be directive. I may have to be prescriptive because we're in a situation that requires that. But actually, most leaders I work with will think that that's got to be 70 or 80% of the day. And actually, it can be 10 or 15% of the day. And you get better results. And so we move to this, like I said, this sense of finesse or mastery that Mm -hmm. unlocks the potential in the people around you it makes for sustainable success. Yeah, you're empowering those people to do their work, right? You don't have to do their work for them. You're empowering them to do the work for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really, yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Now, so tell, tell us about, tell us a bit more about your book. So, what, what, what should we find, expect to find in the book? Yeah, so the book is organized, like I said, it's based on the, the, the sections are based on each of the four dimensions that we talked about, the four roles of a leader, and within each of those sections, we've got ten chapters. Mm-hmm. And so, in the role model, we talk about sort of um, we've, we've tried very, very hard to distill the essence of what it means to be a role model 
Mm-hmm. Right? And so then there are 10 chapters that are almost sort of, they're designed to be thought provoking. Mm-hmm. They're not long, you know, they're not deep, uh, they're not thick or dense or heavy. They're light and they're designed to get you to think about it, read a chapter, close the book, and then go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And just let that provocative statement uh, challenge your thinking. Right. Mm. So it may not be true for you. It may not be a universal truth. It may not be a truth, mm-hmm. but it may just challenge the way that you're thinking. And so mm. we have 10 chapters in each of these sections that hopefully around individual team, the, the context and the mission that will challenge the way that you lead. And, um, you know, if <laughs> I'd be very surprised if you didn't get something out of one of those chapters or something out of the book, it's a, you know, it's taken a lot of work. It's 20 years in the making. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. It comes out in May 2024. Um, I'm really excited to see how, see how it lands. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a really exciting book. And it sounds like you've got some, some really um, research-based, well, well-informed information in there. So I think this is definitely a, a book worth, worth purchasing. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, let me, let me ask you a little bit about um, some of your, your experiences while you were in the uh, as, as a CEO of the of the car industry there, because that, that's I find that just fascinating that you had that that opportunity. Can you tell us what did you find most challenging as a CEO in that in that role, especially in the situation where you had to uh, you know create culture change and change in the organization? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I think that you know the learning that I take out of it. If I think about what would I do differently today than I did then, right? In terms of the turnaround, I don't think anything would change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be some shortcuts, but at the end of the day, we had to go through that process. Part of it afterwards, I think, is, you know, um, how do we sustain, you know, so when I'm working with folks now in, in the coaching world, CEOs now, is how do you build sustainable success? So what are the infrastructure and the processes that we put in place that are mm-hmm. not person dependent, that allow us to see success happen? with less input than we normally would, right? So that really requires, what I typically focus on is scalable infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And scaling can be scaling up or scaling back or scaling sideways or, you know, so an organization, if it has good scalable infrastructure, then it can adapt to whatever the circumstances or, or the market requires. And so for me, there was a tough piece around, okay, we have a business to run, we have quarterly targets to meet, you know, mm-hmm. we have lots of people who are interested or invested in our success. But how do we ensure that we're building what I call is moving from success to significance? Mm-hmm. And so we can do that individually and collectively is like without that infrastructure, without this concept of service, uh, which is what we do individually and structure, which is what we do collectively. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you don't move from success to significance. It's temporary and transactional, and then it disappears when the people leave. And so that so how, how did you achieve that in terms of maintaining success, maintaining uh, and sustaining the change from the people perspective, right? How did you get people from not saying, ah, well, I'm just going to do things the way I used to do them? Yeah. Um, so again, I always, I'm a big believer in front loading the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so and a lot of times I talk to folks, it's in, there's a chapter in the book about how, you know, 
uh, we can sit in a meeting for a couple of hours and then everyone nods their heads and disappears and you think that things are going to get done. And then two hours or two weeks or two days later, you're back in the same room with the same people saying, what happened? Same conversation, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as the leader, then you have to play detective because you have to figure out actually what happened because no one will tell you the truth. And so that makes you very dissonant and it erodes some confidence in the team because, you know, there's a there might be finger pointing or people are not going to take full accountability or we say it's circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about how can we front load this conversation so that we may not just have a one-off call with the people in the room, but we may have three or four before we actually decide to act. Because that allows me as the leader to see what's going on in the room, right? What's the dynamic that's, am I going to expect something based on the body actions or the reactions or the words that are going on in the room? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we do scenario and contingency planning, you know, which is really important. If we could do three or four sections of, up front, because I did an experiment with this with a guy from GE, where we took the amount of time it took to, we ran two projects in parallel. And one we front loaded, so we spent a lot of time on the front end, you know, to the point of annoyance, where we were really trying to reinforce, have we got this? Do we know what we're doing? Mm-hmm. What happens if it goes wrong? What are we going to do? Who's got it? And then we ran one the way he normally did. And so instead of being detective and having to intervene and things getting out of hand and a lot of messiness and inefficiency inside the organization, you're able to flush out what the things that you end up talking about. So I wasn't fully informed or I can't trust this group to come in on time or this thing isn't yeah. going to work anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, but most people don't have that time. They don't have the time available to be able to front load conversations. The most beautiful yeah, irony, the most ir- beautiful irony being is if they, if they would, if they took a front loading approach, they would have more time. Because you have to pay your taxes, right? You pay it at the beginning or you pay it at the end. And if you pay right. it at the end, it's going to be more because yes. if you don't get people committed, like really and truly committed at the beginning of the project, they're going to drag their feet. They're not going to put in full effort. It's going to take much longer. It's just going to cost you more. Yes. But if you can actually get people engaged and committed at the beginning, which takes more time at the beginning, it actually takes less time for the project for completion. So I, I appreciate that. Right. Perfectly said. We've got to invest some time. We can invest it on the backside when everyone's upset and angry, or we can invest mm-hmm. at the front end and prepare our scenarios, and prepare contingencies. And yeah. so, you know, in the, in the case that I talked about, we were 30% quicker and 50% less in budget for the projects running side by side when we took a front-loaded approach. And so what that can mean is then your meetings don't, your calendar doesn't blow up on you, right? Because of these type of events, you're just being able to create a bit more space and energy and time in your calendar to be able to deal with things proactively instead of reactively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, this is such, such interesting stuff. And I know that you do a lot of coaching, consulting as well. How do people get a hold of you if someone wants to get a hold of your services or continue the conversation with yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Well, the best place to, to see our work is, is on the website. That's www.adastraleadership.com, A-D-A-S-T-R-A leadership.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, or you can call the Adastra number is one eight three three adastra which is one eight three three two three two seven eight seven two. Now, let me ask you about Adastra, because that's one of the things that, that really struck me when I saw your thing, because yeah. when I, I went to boarding school, British boarding school, and Adastra was one of our signatory Adastra Reach for the Stars, right? So what yeah. does that mean in yours? Indeed, yeah. It's based on the Royal Air Force motto, uh, which is per ardua ad astra. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, there is a use for Latin after all, um, which means through adversity to the stars. 
And so yeah. Astra is how we aspire to go to the stars. And if you yeah. work with us, we'll take you there. We will take you to the highest levels, but it's going to take some work. It takes adversity. I love that. That's such a great name. And Jamie, before we wrap up, I always want to take advantage of the experts that we have on the show and ask, what's a piece of advice or, or suggestion or recommendation that you have for business leaders out there in this, this world today? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, specifically from when I was a leader, right, I look at leaders today and I think about how the world has changed in the last 20 years. Um, the power of silence or silent space or reflection or meditation, because the world is so much more fragmented, right, and, and distracting than it was. Mm. The value to take time out. And, you know, in my world, I get people to think about using their subconscious to solve problems instead of their prefrontal cortex. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a game changer. Um, but really just taking time to be instead of making time to do. I, I, I love that um, advice because it, it resonates with me because when I, when I used to do research, I did research on unconscious decision making. And the power of, you know, the, the sleep on it effect, right? Because while, even when you're not when you're not thinking about it, if you have expertise in a specific area, your unconscious mind is working on it, right? Yeah. And it's usually better at solving the problem than your conscious mind, which has limited resources. And your conscious mind is way more resources to, to throw at the problem. So mm -hmm. absolutely agree with that. Take the time to just unplug and just let your unconscious mind work. I really think that's, that's such sound advice that people need to take better advantage of, right? People think, well, if I'm not actively working on it, if I'm not working, you know, things aren't getting done. And the truth is you can get a lot done by just being still. Mm -hmm. Well, Jamie, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I think this is such a, a, a great, um, a great model. And I, and I look forward to the book coming out and I know that it's going to be really successful. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Ernest. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Take care. Awesome. And to our audience, thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.